All right. Okay. Good morning. I am discombobulated because our kids had a two-hour delay this morning going to school because of, like, really the nothing weather. that really materialized. But, like, my whole vibe is, like, off because I got up, like, 30 minutes later than I normally do. Like, that's all it takes. Okay. So, let's uh... – it's center. Yeah. It's grounded. <laughs> totally. Let's talk shit for a few minutes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, this is uh, um, this is actually the, the new book that I'm writing is called um, you know how to get grounded, um, mm. and what you do is you ignore all of the good advice about you know getting a good night's sleep and mm. exercising and everything, and what you do is you just get together with your mates and talk shit for a while. Oh, okay. I like that. That's a short book. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's breakthrough. It's breakthrough idea. <laughs> Groundbreaking. Uh, well, this is what I, this is certainly part of the, the value of the podcast for me is being able to kind of connect with you on a pretty routine basis. And like, I feel like there's a snowball of kookiness that just kind of gains a little snow week to week to week to week. And like the limits get pushed a little further and hmm. like there's, there's just a, a, a general kind of like, like exploring the fringe of what we can get away with that I think we're, we're, we're good at kind of, you know, nibbling at a little bit. I'm, I'm, that, that's what I need. I need like somebody that I can continue to kind of push boundaries with and, and kind of, you know, accumulate that kind of, of uh, you know, ability to misbehave over time. You know, it's, it's the core to life, right? Yeah. It's like talking shit with mates. I, you know, I, like I said, it's a book. It's a yeah. short book, but it's a book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, and I, you know, not not to not to kind of ground that, but the reason why that works is because it feels like play. Right. Yes. Hundred percent. Because the thing about work is it doesn't doesn't like, you know, it doesn't make you happy all the time. Sometimes it's like the result of work makes you happy, or the yeah. the, the the reward of work makes you happy, but Hard work is hard work, you know. It's like yeah. it's it's got you got to chop the wood and carry the water, and that's not always the funnest thing to do. Right. But play right. is fun, and I can't even remember who said it. I think it was like it was a Feynman or an Alan Watts or something like that. It said, "If you can turn everything into play, then everything just gets so much better, right? Yeah, everything just gets so much easier, and that's." kind of what we're trying to do here it's kind of what i'm trying to do in all my work is what part of this is playful like what mm -hmm. part of this feels uh energizing because it's play not because it's work yeah. and and that's really a reframing right there's nothing nothing more um to it than just thinking okay well if this was play what would that look like like, yeah. how would I approach this if I was playing? Yeah. Like, how would I do this if I was not being paid and measured and, yeah. you know, CRM'd the fuck out of? Like, right. if I was just having fun with this, what would that look like? Yep. And then that will probably start to provide this emergent quality of like, well, it looks like this. Or it looks like something that yeah. you're not doing yet, but you could do pretty easily. Yeah. I, I, that. Like when I think back to like people I've worked with who are great at like, you know, that, that kind of workshop with clients kind of dynamic. When I think of like people that I 
like working with generally who are good at what they do and don't need process as a crutch. Like when I think of those kinds of people that I've collaborated with, what they're, what they're good at doing is what you're describing, which is like making things feel more like play. I just saw, um, Ben, and I'm, forgive me, Ben, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Mazaros, Mazaros, I forget how to pronounce his last name, but he used to work at Underbelly. Um, I knew him from there. And he just posted this the other day on LinkedIn about like, um, and we talked about this too before, about like the trap of process that like once you kind of yeah. settle into a rigid process, that that becomes like handcuffs that prevent you from innovating. And, and to your point, like what play allows you to do is experiment. Right. It allows you to kind of like try new things and and and, you know, kind of operate with lower stakes and not feel like everything you're doing is being codified into process. Mm-hmm. And the balance is that people who start to gravitate towards a process and solidify into process wind up becoming prisoners of process. They wind up just being confined and constrained and limited by the process that they thought achieved efficiency now becomes like shackles yeah 100 percent. i think like that that's something i've always like i I remember like you know watching people like dan maul or josh clark or or you know patrick marseille people i work with who were just like great in client workshops were the kind of people that would do things like you know mad libs or would do these kind of playful workshoppy things Uh and avoid it being kindergarten and and purely a bunch of bullshit, but would like toe the line, would like flirt with like, no, no, this is getting the executives out of their comfort zone. This is getting people out of their normal seats, forcing them to use the other side of their brain um, and and unlocking things by being playful about things. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sense of humor, not taking yourself so seriously. Like, I think one of the the things that's made work so untenable for most people is that you have to be serious so much of the day. It's not like a natural state for human beings to be like boring and, and straight all the day. Like you need to be a little weird and fucked up, you know, at regular points in your day and your week and your month, the opportunity to do that has been filtered out by this stupid term, which comes up so often. It was like being professional. Yeah. What the fuck does that actually mean? <laughs> what does being professional mean? Yeah. Does it mean what I think it does, which means you have to do the things that I expect from you. In other Perfectly. words, this is a this is kind of like a parental relationship from the 1950s. Like Yeah. Do as I say. Yeah. Don't don't speak up, don't interrupt. Right. Don't share your opinions. Right. Be quiet. Yes. Don't fuck around. There's a that's really what being a professional is. It's just it's just another way for us to say we don't want to hear from you. Just yeah. show up in the in the uniform that we prescribed, do right. the things that we've told you to do, and stay in your lane. That's what yeah. just that's all it means. It doesn't mean like, oh, I want you to be really creative. I want you to have fun at work. I want you to bring new ideas and improvements to that. None of those things are in the word professionalism. Yeah. You're triggering me talking about this, making me think of an, an instance this early my in my, <laughs> my job is to trigger you. You just, you just like all of a sudden I like, I was transported back in time to 2011 
And I was like in my early web career. And I remember traveling to South Dakota to pitch an energy company in person, traveling, have this in-person meeting. I'm 15 minutes into my role. Like I am, I'm brand new. I still have new car smell. Wait, are like, you showing up as, as Joe Rinaldi or are you showing up as what people think you should show up as? The second, hundred percent. That, that was the MO of the meeting was we are going to pitch a, an energy company in the middle of the country for a big project. Like, and I'm, oh I'm God, new. Did you, wear, did you wear pleated pants and a tie? I didn't. I don't think I wore pleated pants at that sports coat. We were like, oh, so, well, my favorite move became what I call the aggregate suit. So what I, what became the playbook for me when I would pitch was we don't have to wear suits, but combined, we should all wear a suit. So you wear a tie, you wear a jacket, I'll wear nice pants. Like, so like in, in combination, there's a suit to be, you want to wear wait, a wait, somebody, so, Somebody's in sweatpants, but they got brogues <laughs> on or something. <laughs> that would have been the best version of it. If like, like truly, and they, and like we all wore like the same, like one color jacket that matched those pants that matched that vest. No way. Pants. No, 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 no. But I, it would be great if we, that would be the best like version. Kit, dude. I love totally this. So that became like my default for like, if we're going to, you know, pitch somebody Fortune 500, we don't have to dress like they dress. We have to be appropriate. So like, let's just do the aggregate suit. So Chris Cash Dollar, who was the best, was the best name in the business still. He was like a designer. He would wear like a vest. Like he could get away with wearing like a shirt and a vest. Like it was like, you can do that. Wait, like, a, like a finance vest. Like yeah, a Patagonia finance like, like, pro. No, yeah. no, like a, like, a, like a suit, like a nice, like, like, oh, like a, oh, you, oh, yeah. Oh, what we used to call a waistcoat back in the days when yes. dinosaurs still run. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. So like, what would be the equivalent of a waistcoat? Exactly right. So, and he'd wear like that and like some cool pants and a nice watch. And he's like, that dude's a fucking baller. I would, you know, wear, I'd be the guy, I'll wear the tie and I'll roll my sleeves up and I'll have like a dress shirt on and a tie. And then you wear a jacket. That was, so the aggregate suit became our solution for like how to look like grownups in, in a grown up oh environment. But prior well, to I, that, I, I, I feel like I got to make notes about this. This is like, this, this is gold, dude. Yeah, yeah, suit, yeah. So pr before we arrived at the aggregate suit, there was a lot of like LARPing and cosplaying as professionals. Like, oh, we're going to, so, and that's what this was. This was going to South Dakota to meet this energy company. We have to like biz cash it up a little bit because we're going to meet with a very professional organization. We have to like match their energy. You know, well-intended, misguided, but that's what we did. And, and I am brand new to the company. I am, like, you know, minutes into my job. I'm not even doing my job yet. I'm still, like, learning, and other people are selling, and I'm kind of, like, sponging all this stuff up. Never worked in Keynote before. We're working on slides. We're putting the deck together. And something happened with version control where there was a miss. There was, like, a miss save or something. And seven slides in. There was a slide that literally said on it, like bullet one, bullet two, bullet three, instead of the bulleted points that were supposed to be on the deck. So there, it had been done, like to be fair to the, to the situation, like it wasn't like we put a deck together and didn't proof it. I think we put the deck together, proofed it, and then like reverted to a previous version inadvertently and then lost the save or something. So, you know, it was- This would have been, this would have been the perfect slide though, to see if anybody's paying attention. <laughs> In the room, yeah. Do you have the clients like clicking it on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and, a lot of like head nodding while I check their email or something. Yeah. And I'd like to to wrap up this point by saying this slide has nothing on it and it's been on the screen for the past five minutes and no one's noticed. Yeah, that would have been like, but that would have been the move. And that's my point. My point is in that instance, when that, you know, basically like our fly is down, like there's this moment where like this slide is there with no bullets and it says bullet. One. I mean, the only thing that could have been worse if it said like dumb thing, one dumb thing. You know what I mean? Like if it had been irreverent, that would have been like maybe a little bit better. But like it just said like bullet one, bullet two, bullet three. And the flop sweat that we all like were triggered into by this like catastrophe that we happened to like we are a bunch of jamokes and jabronis that we are throwing this slide up that has like three bullets on it with nothing in it. Like we are fucked from here to eternity and we should all rot in hell. And like, we got the job. Like we totally got that project. We signed that thing. And, and, and frankly, had we like just been more chill about it and embraced like, now this, this is the thing that happened. Like there is a version of confidence that is palpable in that when you own that stuff and you don't worry about are we going to win the merit badge for being the most professional? Like there is, there's no second place award awarded to the people that didn't get the work that were the most professional. Like there is, there's just whether people want to work with you or not. And if your crutch is that you are the most professional, that you are the most like old school or traditional or whatever, like, Without realizing it, that is the kind of instinct that keeps women out of presenting, that keeps anybody but middle-aged white guys out of presenting roles, because that, that is that is part of that culture, is like indexing towards, it's a safer bet. I actually had this said to me once, that this person should say this thing because they have more gray hair than that person who shouldn't say that thing because they're younger and it will come across the same way as the person. I've, I've had that meeting. I like... I've had somebody say to me one time, this amazing person I worked with, say to me, that person will never be a manager. It's like, well, why? Every time I walk down this narrow hallway and they walk towards me, they step aside and let me pass. They can never be a manager. Like that was said to me at one point by somebody I, I worked for. Wow. Like, it's like, are you no way. kidding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and this is not 1957. Like, I'm not talking about like, you know, the Mad Men Day ancient past. This is like in my working in, in my my contemporary working life in the past 15 years. Like these are the things that plague people when it comes to like professionalism or like what is valued yeah. and, and that kind of, you know, executive bullshit. But but yeah, you talking about that whole like, you know, the fear of it's it's more the fear of being perceived as unprofessional versus yeah. the value of well, being well, professional, right? It's it's like um and I think we we talked about this in a previous episode, jargon. Jargon right. yeah, yeah, is exactly. yes, yes, yes. Right. So yes, jargon yes, is, yes. is an exclusionary story. It is. Like I know, you don't know. Yeah. One day you'll know, but for now you don't know. Yes. Right. And then the 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 word professionalism is is the umbrella of all of that. We yeah. know how to behave, we know how to dress, we know how to present, we know how to walk down the hallway. You don't know. And we're not going to tell you, if you can't figure it out on your own, you'll always yeah. be the person who can't be. Right, right, right. right. That's a great right. point. So saying professionalism is saying, we have an inside joke. Right. And you don't know what it is. Right. And if you know what it is, you'll show up like that. And really what we're saying is, 
conform, like participate as as the people who are here are behaving and everything will be good and step outside the lines or color outside the lines, you're fucked. Yeah. You're no longer part of the tribe. I have to repeat what you just said. I think that is so important. The fact that those rules are not codified anywhere. It's not written down anywhere. There's not a jargon handbook. There's not a professional Robert's rules of orders, best practices, part of orientation that HR gives you. Like all of this is secret, secret. It, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's ironic for two men to be talking about this or for me to use this example when I'm talking to another dude, but like, it reminds me very much of, you know, five years ago, there was so much um, conversation around women being criticized for having unprofessional hair styles at work, especially yeah. African-American black women having like unacceptable or unpro- like that. That's what this is. That's what this is. And it rolls all the way back to like, finishing schools and Ivy leagues. And, and all of that is where this accumulated behavior is learned and built from. And, and to be fair, you know, not that I'm disadvantaged or anything, but my father was a pipe fitter. Like he was a union pipe fitter. I, I was the first person from my family to graduate from college. Like there is a whole under knowledge base that I did not have when I started to work as a professional person that I was just not, you know, privy to. Like I just wasn't exposed to it. I didn't have that that firsthand account of what that looked like, how that behaved. You know, and I think that is definitely the the like but to your advantage. Look, to your advantage, I think you were you and I both came up in an era between the extremely professionalized version of what was supposed to be and what should be and what had to happen in, in, in work and what is today, which is massive amounts of neurodiversity, or at least trending towards that. It's not there yet. But yeah. we were we came up in a time when all of that language was still in use, all that behavior was still anticipated or expected from an employee. But we were still trying to bring ourselves to work. We we're like, hang on, this this stuff isn't working. I want to yeah. try something different. I want yeah. to show up with my personality and my words and my expressions and see what that looks like. And 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 so even in our lifetime, I saw myself going from showing up at work in a suit because that's what was expected of me yeah, 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 to yeah. then employing people who had tattoos, piercings, and facial hair that I wouldn't have even imagined in a rock band. Right, right, right. Right, because that was like, well, yeah. maybe on the fur extremes yeah, that yeah. happened, but it yeah. doesn't happen in the workplace. And now, yeah. let's be honest: if you're, if you're, if you look around the room and everybody looks like you, you're fucked. Like yeah, I don't yeah, mean yeah. that in like a hyperbolic way. I mean, if you right. look around and everybody looks exactly like you, yeah. something is horribly wrong with the organization. You are not doing a good job in creating a safe psychological space for people to show up as themselves. Because yeah. as soon as somebody shows up that looks a little different, yeah. there is an implicit yeah. story that they don't belong. Oh, 100%. I went to, I'm such a goddamn nerd, four years ago, prior to COVID, maybe 2019, 2018, I went to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference up in Boston. Like it's I've like, been there. It's, it's actually a really good conference. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, right? I, sat, I sat next to the CIO of NASCAR. 
Oh, this amazing Finish story. I got to tell you that story. That was awesome. So Warren and I went, Warren Molanski and I went, we like met up there and like went together and like he went to all the baseball things and, and, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's there doing a talk with this person. And it was, right. it, so I was there the year after you recommend it. Mama was yeah. there the year before I was there. Like it was, and it's amazing. But the, the, when I was there, it started to reach like a level of conference maturity, I guess, or conference kind of consistency where there were now like phalanxes of like startup bros who were infiltrating the conference and they wore a uniform. Like they were, they were incredibly easy to spot from a great distance because they all wore the same like tan shoes with white soles. They all had on their fleece kind of Patagonia joint with their, they all looked like, you know, they had been training for a 5k that morning and, you know, had like some kind of, it was, it was, it was, and they were all younger guys who were there to network and like start their career and like try to get into sports, you know, administration or whatever it was, but there was such a type. It was, it was, it was staggering. And I think I'm sheltered from it a little bit in my personal experience, because I've worked in a more creative industry with more creative people with a little bit more freedom, blah, 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 blah. When we went, so when years and years ago, when I was at Happy Cod, we worked with Papa John's prior. And like, this is like when little Papa was still there, like before he got his ass canceled. Like this is like in the heyday of that dude running around making bad decisions. And we go and we had the best clients. I want to put this out there first. Ted Hardy, who was our client there, was the fucking best. He was the, he's still a friend. He was awesome. But when we got there, he was taking us on a tour of the building and I'd never seen firsthand an environment that traded on the value of logo wear as much as mm. Papa John's did. I'd never seen anything like it in my life where, I mean, so to, to give it some context, the cafeteria commissary at the Papa John's headquarters at the time was a functioning Papa John's restaurant. That was it. You could only, if you bought food, if you wanted to eat at the company, at the headquarters, you got to order from a pizza joints menu every day. That was all wow. you could choose. But that was all they had was inside. There, was there a defibrillator and a, oh a gurney? Like, no shit, right? Like, and then, and to be fair, on the contrast, when we work with Ben and Jerry's, at Ben and Jerry's in the lot in the lobby, you can grab a pint whenever you want. Grab a pint of ice cream, come and go on whenever you want. And they do cardiac screenings all the time, routinely. They have free cardiac wow. screenings. They have all this like healthcare infrastructure built around like maintaining good health, but still you can have free access to indulge yourself in some ice cream if you want. So there was like a balance there. At Papa John's, it was bananas. It was like, it was amazing. So as we're walking around, everybody had on some different kind of Papa John's, all the men in particular, collared shirts, vests, like I don't, the, the, there wasn't as much available inventory wise, I guess, for the, for the women who worked there, but every dude had on logo, 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 logo. It was everywhere to the point where you overheard somebody say to someone like, oh, is that new? Like, I haven't seen that in the store yet. Like there was definitely like a currency. Like, they're wearing, like their favorite sports team or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it was like, it was, they were like, there were, I, you perceived layers of of like kind of expectations around. Like it was an, it was an expectation that people wore the logo wear, but it seemed like it was also an expectation that you continued to buy 
the new logo wear that rolled out. Like if you just had like four or five shirts and you kind of wore them a lot, like I think that was a demerit. Like that was like a strike against you. You had to be like so on board that you were, you know, happily, greedily buying like the new windbreaker that came out so that you were like reinvesting and reinvesting and reinvesting. It was, yeah. but to, to, to the example, this is another environment where that was the, that was what was perceived as professionally appropriate was yeah. To, to, you know, slap the logo somewhere on your, you know, biz cash kind of outfit. That was, again, like another uniform that we, when we were walking around, we're like, holy mackerel, like we're here wearing, like, wow. and that was like peak aggregate suit days. I remember cash dollar was probably wearing a vest for that meeting. And we're like, what the, where are we? Like, this is like, we are strangers. I wonder in the if strange people like that. I wonder if they I don't still know. have I mean, that. Point. They had such a huge corporate and cultural overhaul when he got ousted. I don't know that they're still like that, but it was like, they had a, like a museum to him in the lobby, like a whole like museum to the founder with like, this is the car he started the business in. This is his first pizza oven. Like what the fuck? And they had, it was, it was, it was amazing. Like there there was, there was a, they had some, all right. So another favorite dumb thing of mine is when some kind of restaurant that is indoors creates a fake outdoor vibe with like a street lamp, you know, or like Rainbow like Cafe, dude. Rainbow so, Cafe. So I call that that's that's in fresco dining instead of alfresco dining. That's called in fresco dining. So there's like so my favorite thing is when I, I like the I love I love in fresco dining. Like at our mall, we have a indoor restaurant that has like indoor but it has like patio seats and umbrellas indoors. Like there's no direct sunlight. It has giant umbrellas and like front. Yeah, like, there's entire buildings in Vegas like that where you can go in and there's like Vegas a whole is, city. Vegas is the Mecca for in fresco dining. It is, yeah. when I went to Vegas for the first time, I was like, I've, I'm home. Like this is like, this is the best version. <laughs> my, my favorite, most horrible version of in fresco dining is at, um, at Penn Station in New York. So oh, if anybody's yes. taking the train through Penn Station, it's a goddamn shit show, right? Like you're yeah. stuck there. They don't announce the trains till five seconds after they've arrived. Like everybody's yeah, like, everybody's hanging on that, oh my God, everybody's hanging on that subfloor, watching the one yeah. hidden screen so that you're one layer below so you can get to the train. Like it is a fucking shit show. And there's a TGI Fridays right there that is next to the world's grossest bathroom. Like it's the world's maybe the world's grossest bathroom. This train bathroom. The There's so they're basically if you go in there, you know you're going to get sick. You just 100, 100. Just accept that if you need to pee in that bathroom, yep. you're coming There's, away with fucking Ebola, like with Mar- MRSA, Ebola, all of it. Like yes, 100. percent So in that Fridays, my fa- my favorite in Fresco dining is in that Fridays. There is a window that is part of the fascia of the restaurant that then they open up into the train station as if it's like opening it up in and it's next to the world's grossest bathroom. So it's like, there's like this like window that the cafe windows, they open up to like let in whatever, like some breeze or something. And it's like, truly it's in the wind. Like there's some like Dyson hand, like drying. There's a homeless guy leaning in the window. It's great. It's, just, it's, it's like, if, if you had like ultraviolet glasses on, all you would see is like poo particles, like flying in through the window the entire time. Like, it's unbelievable. So, so yeah, so they have, so my favorite thing is in Fresco Dining and at Papa John's headquarters, they had some legit 
in fresco dining. They had like fronded trees and all this stuff. And then they had painted like a fresco of clouds and like made the whole like kind of ceiling look like, you know, a, a like a, like a Venetian kind of like cloud and, and, and skyscape. And, yeah. and it was pointed out to us, if you look closely in that cloud, there's a portrait of the founder's no dead father way. in the cloud, no like way. looking down on it was. Yeah. So that's like, so again, culture is a holy shit kind of thing. It's crazy. And, and what is considered, and, and again, when people started on their first day at Papa John's, there was, I'm sure, no HR handbook that said, if you really want to look like you belong at Papa John's, you should wear logo wear every day. If you want to really, yeah. you should really care about Kentucky or Louisville basketball because we have a scale basketball court built in the middle of our building that no one can use that is half Kentucky, half Louisville with real stanchions and baskets that is just there as like a mausoleum to Kentucky basketball. Like, like there's, there's nothing that said explicitly, this is the grammar of success here. And you'd be smart to bone up on this if you want to fit in and get by. It just, you just had to figure it out on the fly. And I think yeah. to your point, that valuing of jargon just gives people a chance to create haves and have nots. It just gives you a chance to have inside outside kind of dynamic. You're inside or you're outside. And if you want to be inside, this is how this works. If you want to be on the outside, that's how that works. And good luck decoding all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're not going to stick around very long if you don't, right? If you don't wear the gear. So yeah. <clears throat> here's the here's the science side of that. When I was at Envision, one of the things that we were responsible for was this thing called the Design Maturity Assessment, the DMA. Well, yeah. And it was a big piece of work, right? So uh, um, before I even got there, there was a lot of work put into this thing, um, massive amount of work, really just surveying as many people as we could in the design engineering product sphere as to what it is that they did every day. Okay. How did they get their work done? Okay. And what we were trying to understand is in organizations that show a level of immaturity versus companies that have high maturity, is there any distinction? Like what are they doing differently? What is the, what is the emergent behavior that we can expect to see in an organization that fits into some description here. Now, not everybody's a huge fan of maturity models, and I understand why, because they are reductionist, and that's not going to be a solution for everything. But the survey very often is just like like any kind of planning, right? So when you plan, it's the planning, not the plan that's really important. It's like the thinking. Right. It's like when you're doing a business canvas. It's the thought you put into the business canvas that's really important. It's not the end product that's the thing you care about. Exactly. It's not important that you're an ENTJ in a Myers-Briggs thing. It's important that you Get understand what to do with that information. Yeah, that you actually thought about that shit for the first time. You're like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Yes. Well, that's exactly what this the DMA did was it asked you questions where you were like, oh, gee, I, haven't, I don't know. That That is something that we just do. I don't know why we do that. I don't know why we wear that. I don't know why we show up like that. I don't know why. Like very often these questions are just like, gee, I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, you're right. So the value was there, yep. but of course there was 
some quantitative data that came out of that as well. And what was really surprising is that companies that were mature, and like we're talking about genuinely mature, not like we surveyed one leader and the leader said, oh, we're great. That's, right. that's not true. No. Uh, yes. And I'll, we'll talk about that a separate time, like how that, <laughs> how the survey actually what con- was conducted. But, <laughs> but if you if you ask enough people and you get both the senior and junior perspectives and everybody right. in between, you'll get a general idea of what and triangulate. And very yeah. often they were thinking the same things that we're thinking, which is, uh, yeah, we do stuff and it seems to work, but we're not quite sure why. Let's see if we can answer it these questions and find out what that looks like. And so mm. there were 88 questions. It was a big mm. survey. It was mm. a big piece of thinking you had to do. You had to spend, you know, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, like thinking about all this stuff and answering and it. Was it like long form answers or is it multiple choice answers? Like when, it, when you're a saying. Combination like, of things. Oh, yeah, okay. combination of things. So okay. you, uh, mostly you were looking for the data that you can compare against others. So right. like, hey, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you not do this? So there was that multiple choice element to it. But then there were also opportunities for you to share qualitative thinking okay. in that as well. Like, gee, I don't know. Um, we kind of do this, but we also do some of this. Okay. So there was that, that that element as well. But generally, there's this massive set of quantitative data. Mm. 2,700 companies, mm. 70-something countries. This is like a big, big chunk of data. So Leah Bewley and Aaron Walter had been the protagonists of this thing and created the essentially that big fat survey plus okay. the, 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 the original kind of set of data okay. and all the thinking that went into that. And then um, some, some you know, additional work had to go into making that usable on a regular basis. And that okay. was really the kind of fun part. But mm. the insight here, which relates to our conversation, is that very often companies didn't know why they were doing the things they were doing. Sure. And then it turned out that the things that they were doing that were high maturity, in other words, led to better performance, uh, you know, deeper, more meaningful relationships, uh, understanding, really, kind of a relationship understanding, like I know what this person does, I know what I do, I know how to work with each other. Almost all that stuff was not stuff you can put in a handbook in an obvious way. It would be like, you have to spend time with people to make them understand you. You have to have Mm. conversations with people. So you would literally, if that was a handbook, you'd have to say, you need to have more conversations. Right. And you'd be like, "Uh, what kind of conversations? Right, right. Like conversations about what's meaningful for you, what's meaningful for the other person. You have to empathetically be part of that conversation. In other words, truly listen to what they care about mm. and why they have the perspectives that they have and why they care about those things more deeply than the other things. Mm. And those relationship communications that people would be having, they are not in the standard operating procedure of most companies. Most companies say right. you're either working in your right. individual capacity to do yeah. a thing, kind right. of heads down work as we call it, or you're in a meeting. Right. And then sometimes there's space for like, oh, we were sitting at lunch together or we were kind of water water cooler type conversations, right? This is really clear on the agency side where there's like billable work and there's non-billable work. And this is all the non-billable stuff. So it's like kind of like got stink on it. Like there's the billable stuff that's valuable and then everything else is like extracurricular. It's not as crystal clear in a corporate environment, an internal environment, because it's, you know, it's all on clock. 
but you're that's what you're talking about. There's like there's right. value to the productive work, the meeting attendee, the blah 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 blah. Well, but it's measurable. You, so yeah, to you know the, the the massive hangover that we're experiencing is the John Dewar, Michael Porter has to be measured to matter kind of mm. thing, right? All those perspectives have been well. If you can't measure, it doesn't matter. Right. This was like the general uh, tagline. Like if you put if professionalism as a brand had a tagline it would yeah. be that yeah and as you said there's no the, the things that you can measure don't matter turns yeah. out and then the things that you sorry the other way the things you can measure really don't matter because they right. tend to be like vanity metrics like in our world it was yeah. how many visitors to your website or how many subscribers right, right. you have or like right. none of that stuff really really mattered at the end right. of the day and then the stuff that was very, very difficult or impossible to measure mattered a lot. So right. that's what this massive study, this DMA, started to surface was right. that the things that really matter that are actually going to lead to high maturity, high performance, high velocity teams, that stuff is very, very hard to measure. Right. And so leaders have to be themselves quite mature to allow that to happen. They, they and, and really ultimately what it boils down to is safe psychological space. Right. Do you feel that you have permission to go and build relationships with other people yeah. without that becoming like that person spending way too much time talking to other people? Right, right. Or do you have permission to speak up to yeah. dissent from what's the professionalism of the organization or mm -hmm. what's been in the handbook? Whatever? All of those things sound squishy, but here's the funny thing. They're not. They're the things that matter. Like when you look at the high-performing teams and you go, oh my God, these guys are shipping product like it's a fucking, um, like it's it's just amazing how quickly yeah, they're yeah, doing yeah. it. Yeah. You go back and you're like, oh, they're doing a lot of the soft, squishy stuff. They're compassionate. Yeah. They're empathetic. Right. They spend time getting to know each other. They right. care about each other. There's yeah. a high level of diversity in their team. They have right. relationships with people down and sideways in other oh, words they're not just like their team yep, yep, yep. They're like talking to other people they're like hey i'm going to skip a couple of runs here and go and talk to that person because that person really helps us right. get what we need or yep, understand yep. what we need yep and i'm also going to go and talk to other people who are not part of our organization customers mm -hmm. we're going to talk to customers all of this stuff is like really really hard to measure yeah, yeah. but it's the stuff that gets stuff done and so if yeah. you can convince the company to go hey if you create safe psychological spaces for empathy, for compassion, for relationship building, mm. for dissension, for all of these things, mm. that's not you being nice. That's not you being like a cool <laughs> DEI person. This is you being a hardcore business person who wants profits and results. That's right. You're not being a cool mom that lets the kids drink after school. Like, no, no, no. This is like, but I think it, it's so, what you're describing is so important. And it's like, there's so many layers to that, right? If you're a, if you're an, charged with developing that within an organization, you have to A, value it, which is not nothing. Like you have to, you have to be convinced that that is valuable. You have to get on board with all of that human stuff being the valuable stuff. Okay, cool. Even once you accomplish that, then you have to be able to implement that to your point and create safe psychological spaces where this can happen. Then you have to be able to adequately perceive if people are doing it or not. Like you have to be able to like, so, so let's stop you there because that's the critical thing. Okay. Most early stage companies start on the right foot. They start because implicitly we're human beings. We know this stuff. 
Right. We know that if you have good relationships with people, right. things are better. You know that if you're able to communicate honestly and freely with integrity, that things will be better. So when companies are small, when they're in that early stage or when they're in yeah. that startup phase, there, there are fewer people. There is fewer dynamics. So it's yes. easy to be normal human. That's like, hierarchy. We're like, yeah, yeah, let's just right. talk. Let's, yep. Hey, yep. hey, Joe, come right. over here. Like, exactly, you know, exactly, exactly. Joe, yeah. So whatever they used to call that, like, you know, the, the size of a pizza, right? You should never have more people than right. what can yeah. sit around and eat a pizza. Yep. That kind of logic, right? That's, yeah, that's yeah, a little yeah. bit weird. But the problem is what you've just mentioned is the how do you then perceive that that's working? Right. And what happens is, especially with leadership, leaders tend to start behaving in ways that disconnects them from that. In other words, they say this is important, but they don't show up like that. Right, they start to behave differently. Andy Grove was a really good example of this. He used to say, "You know, we really care about middle management." They literally wrote the book on middle management. There's a book mm. called like "How to Manage the Middle" or something. I don't know. Yeah. Can't even remember what it was called. But Intel and Andy wrote this thing. The problem was Andy and his executives never behaved like that. Yeah. They behaved in an autocratic way. What they, what yeah. what would happen is. Things would go not according to plan, which is inevitable, by the way. Right. And they would panic and they'd go, we need to be more autocratic. Mm. We need to like come down hard on people. We need to force people to sit at their desks yeah. and chain them to the work. Yeah. And that's when everything breaks because you had trust. You yeah. were giving trust. You were giving the opportunity, the safe psychological space for people to be innovative and cool. And that's what led to your initial growth. Right. And then you hit a road bump. And right. then you panicked and you start to behave like a fucking idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're, you know, now you're the Viking captain just screaming at people. Right. You know, if you don't pull your weight, we're going to chop your hands off kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly everybody's like, well, that's not what I signed up for. Yeah. And then they're like, uh, I don't feel like I'm trusted anymore. There is no mm -hmm. more psychological space here for me to be yep. myself, to do the yep. cool thing that I want to do. So either I'm going to leave. If you're a high-performing people person, you just leave. You're like, yep. fuck this shit. Right. Or if you're low-performing, you're like, well, I'm going to kind of just participate in this madness yeah. to get my salary and yeah. maybe I'm something better will come along. I'm going to decode the Japanese tea ceremony of this and what are the important parts of that ritual. And I'm going to play that game. And my job now is, am I in every meeting I need to be in? That's my new job. And what happens is you become that thing. Oh, totally. So you become... I mean, Look, and then people are like, I don't understand how GE yeah, got off the rails or I don't understand how Intel right? got off the rails. Yeah, <clears throat> it, it, you're being told by your own advancement that that is valued. So you double down and like that is, it's a, it's a non-virtuous self-fulfilling cycle once that thing starts to catch on. Like, oh, and that's, and there are people that are like dangerously good at that. And it's the Peter principle, right? It's like the whole, like, you know, they're able to kind of just like nudge and nudge and nudge and nudge and nudge up to the point where they fail. Like, I don't know, like yeah. that's, don't give them enough, roof, uh, enough um, rope to hang themselves with kind of, but. Yeah. And then they, those people eventually get laid off, right? Eventually there'll be some kind of roof. Yeah. They'll get laid off and they'll scratch their heads. They'll go, I don't understand. I did everything you wanted me to do. I behaved like everybody else. Yeah. I participated in the madness. Why mm -hmm. did I let, get let go? Yeah. And they will hardly ever recover from that. Their their yeah. ego will be completely fucked because they'll be like, I did everything you asked it's a, me. It's a betrayal. Me. It feels for that person, it feels like a betrayal. It's it's not un, it's not dissimilar from what Blair Ends recommends in the Win Without Pitching Manifesto of like 
misbehaving in an RFP. Like don't, you know, and we've talked about like um, Zag, what the hell's the name of the, oh, it's, it's a marketing book. I think it's called Zag, but it's just about like, you know, being kind of noisy within the process and not following the playbook and being distinct and distinguishing yourself. And I think that there is a, in, in sales, in, in agency world, there is a perception that like, and I see it with my development shops more than I see it with my design shops. God bless my dev shops, but there is definitely a pervasive feeling with those folks sometimes where it's like, well, I, I, I was the rightest. I should have won the work. I was the most right. Like I did the most work. I checked all the boxes. I did everything that was supposed to happen. I, I fulfilled every requirement. I get the work, right? It's like, eh, actually, it's going to be this other person wearing a funny scarf that gets the work because they're the ones that really like turn these people on. And this, this was exactly what happened to us because we we refused to do RFPs. That was like okay. part of our shtick. Yeah. And then we got a call from this guy and he was like, hey, listen, I've just been told I'm essentially in charge of what was then Romney Care, which became Obamacare in okay. Massachusetts became the health connector. It was like this big breakthrough. Suddenly you had this marketplace where you could go yeah. buy your own healthcare. It was a big yeah. fucking deal. Yes, and we knew there was going to be like something that it would start in Massachusetts. It would roll out through other country. Yeah. And this guy called us and said, look, really, really want to work with you guys. You know, you're in the backyard here. You're my guys. <laughs> Fill out the RFP and it's yours. And we right. went down there. And we high-fived and we were mates with this guy and we he played in a band with a guy that we knew and we were like, went to watch him perform. I mean, sure. we were in. We were yeah. in. The inside we track. Inside track. 100%. And then the decision came down and they gave the work to a company based in Texas. Yeah. This was a Massachusetts-based organization, a mm. nonprofit funded by the Massachusetts government, or this yeah. is the Commonwealth. And they sent the money to Texas. And mm. I called the guy and I said, what the fuck? Right. Like we literally crawled across the stony desert for you, dude. We did exactly what you wanted. Right. And he was like, yeah, the committee just decided. And I was like, ah, this is why we don't do RFPs. It's because the RFP process yeah. has nothing to do with being right. You can no, be you right. Are. Oh, God, no. Yeah. The no, RFP no. process has everything to do with bureaucracy. And if yes. you are willing to play that game, then yeah. be prepared right. to also die by that sword. One hundred percent. And it's and the crime of it is that eliminate. I, I couldn't agree more. I am fundamentally RFP averse, but that eliminates. You can't work with the Smithsonian because everything through the federal government has to be through an RFP. You can't work with NASA. You can't work with the national parks. Like there's so many cool things that would be a joy to work on that are stuck for a variety of reasons. Fortune 100 companies, you know, a lot well, of- yeah, I mean, we, I, I One mean, of my big clients was the DOD when I had uh, my first company before okay. Rachel Coyle. And we were professional grant writers. We were professional mm -hmm. P RFP responders. Like mm -hmm. there, was, there was a professionalism in the bureaucracy that we yeah. had to adhere yeah. to that had nothing to do with the work. Right. But, and to your point, like, just to be clear, like an RFP is a multi-page document with lots of questions that you have to respond to. And it becomes this bureaucratic framework for helping people make a decision. Yeah. The time and effort invested in the RFP is bananas. It is far exceeds the value. 
100%. And it's and it basically at its core illuminates to the person, the client who is best at RFPs. Which does not necessarily mean they are the best web That's designer. What yeah. It does not necessarily mean have nothing to do with the work. Nothing at all. It if is you are a good grant writer doesn't make you a good 100%. PhD. The fact that you can fill out an RFP doesn't mean you're good at work. Now, there are exceptions. There are people who are really good. Like, you know, when when Yellow Pencil decided that they were going to go all in on uh, municipalities and and cities, and they were like, there's a a story here. We're going to get really good at it. They became the best in the market for that. Yep. And the the Bellows boys were like, this is our thing. We're going to get really good at this stuff. And they cracked the, the nut on that. Right. But talk about a place where like RFPs were a requirement. Like it is non-negotiable. It is the the way these things are administrated at like a municipal level. That is a a necessary evil in that process. Yeah. One of the ways that, and for folks who are listening and thinking like, well, I I kind of get around it. Like, you know, this is the this is the space I'm in. Yeah. Is that we said, great, we're happy to participate in the madness. Right. But let us do it in a way that's equal footing to exactly. the value of the participation, which means yeah. We'll do this with you. In other words, we'll come to your offices and we'll yeah. sit with you and you read out the questions and we'll have a conversation. Yeah. So maybe the question is like, share five projects that you've worked with in the past that demonstrate that you know how to do this. Yeah. And we'd sit down and say like, here's the work. Here's how we approach that work. Yep. Just like kindergarten. We're not just going to show you the answer. We're going to show you the work as well, how we got yeah. there, show you how we think. And that's why you should hire us. Yeah. From time to time, that would work. From time to time, sure. people would say, Actually, that would save us a lot of agony. Like if sure. we just got you guys in here. And but that's not always possible. No. And from time to time, even through an RFP, you would land a good client. I mean, that example that I was sharing earlier about flying out to South Dakota, that was an RFP. And the only reason at the time we considered responding to that RFP was because we were in tough financial shape and we had to kind of get flexible about what we were considering and be more, you know, willing to play by those rules. I mean, at that, there was a point where I, when I came in at Happy Cog where, you know, the inbound funnel had kind of slowed a little bit and things were getting hairy and we were responding to, you know, state government RFPs where we had to send the RFP response in a, on a disc and we had to send multiple discs with multiple envelopes, oh to, like sealed, you know, all this stuff. Like we, yeah, you know, you're already bracketing us now. Yeah, we were like our backs were up against the wall. But but the point I wanted to make about like the way that an RFP behaves is, and bring it back to the to the design maturity index. Am I saying that right? No assessment. Assessment design. Like there is something to be said for quantifying something and going through that exercise, and the realization being the value. The RFP, what is different about the RFP is it's it's intended that the filling out the document is the valuable part. And that is not what an assessment is for. That is not what the DNA was for. That's not what, you know, things that are valuable are for. It's not for the, you know, you are the best at filling out this document. No, no, no. The filling out the document is merely like giving us some information to work with. And the important stuff happens afterwards. Once this is analyzed, once it's scrutinized, once conclusions are drawn. And, and there's like, you know, a lot of in between the lines stuff that actually is the important thing that comes out of the DMA or comes out of those kinds of assessments. Yeah. Again, this is like life, right? So if you have the opportunity to sit down and talk to somebody and get to know them, you are going to get an insight that is many dimensions more interesting 
than if you just read their LinkedIn profile, for right. example. Yeah. And and no more is that true than when you are working in a service organization where you are literally hopping from one project to another on a regular basis. I think I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was around Freshal Soil was doing about 15 to 16 major projects a year. Yeah, these are not like ongoing clients who are like, you know, right. with like maintaining or fixing or right. whatever. Like this is like you're starting with yeah. kicking off a project. These are significant investments, hundreds yeah. of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of investments on our clients side um, into the project. And we're kicking those off. So that is like, you know, probably in the range of one big project, or two big projects, one and a half ish per mm -hmm. month. Yeah. Now, if you went to any team and said, you're going to launch a new product project every month, right. this is, this, they would lose their minds. And I want to bring this full circle back to that MIT sports science thing. I'm sitting next to the CIO of NASCAR. Mm -hmm. And he's listening to a whole bunch of people talking about like how amazing the Super Bowl is, what a big lift it is, like wah, wah, wah. And he goes, yeah, I do that every week in a different right. location. Right. <laughs> right. And right. then a couple of years later, I was had the opportunity to work with um, a big VC firm that had a significant personal interest in uh, Formula One. Mm. And they had the CIO of one of the Formula One teams mm. come and speak at the event. And he goes, yeah, that's cute that you do a different event every week. In a different city, we do it in a different country. country. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so whatever you think, you, you know, <laughs> the size of your shoes are, somebody's got a bigger pair of shoes. No, totally. And agencies are an incredible place to go and get that education. If you want to get an MBA in how to manage relationships and how to build teams and assemble and maintain the glue that goes into that stuff. Join yeah. an agency because yeah. you are forced to do that on a regular basis. Yeah. You don't have, oh, well, I'm going to just do my work here and the other people on the team, I'll get to know them eventually. Maybe next, you know, next whenever summer when we all do our IRL event and we all get together, I'll, you know, I'll share a beer and a burger with these people right. and I'll get to know them. Like if you're an agency person, you're like, I got, I got 15 minutes to get married. Right. I got to go from dating to get married in 15 yeah, yeah. minutes. I better be as empathetic and understanding and compassionate as possible. I better yep. create a lot of psych psychological safety yep. for that to happen. And yep. so I always like, I love this. I, I use it a lot in my talks. I use this idea of Formula One. Mm. I'm like, if you want to be really good at something, go to those examples where it's intense, like it's really, really good, and then yeah. work backwards from that. Okay. So if you're throwing a Super Bowl event in a yeah. different country, every two weeks with significant amounts of complexity. Right. I mean, complexity that would just make our heads explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can start there and then work backwards to what you're going to do, yeah. then you're probably going to do fine. You know, like that's where the DMA was trying to say is, or the, the DMA was asking the question, what do these high-performing teams do? You'll probably never be in the same level of complexity that they're in. But if you can see what they're doing and you can see what makes right. that work, Right. We can work backwards from that and see how that might work for your team right. in your slightly smaller or less right. perform, high, you know, lower performing yep. context. But it'll also give you a roadmap to see how you can go from throwing a Super Bowl to doing NASCAR to doing Formula One.
Right, right, right. So then in the DMA, what was the like life cycle of that once someone completed the DMA as part of working with Envision or, you know, kind of like doing that kind of self-assessment? What was like, was there, what was the outcome of that? Or what was the output? Was it like a forecast? Was it a report? Was it recommendations? Yeah. Was so it consulting? Like, so the first phase was mm-hmm. if you participated as a survey participant, just mm-hmm. you filled out that then you yeah. would get the aggregated data. So sure. you would get, here's all the data across all these different things. Yep. Uh, here are the, the, I think there were nine dimensions. You can have a look and see where you might fall in that. Okay. And then the next phase of that was, we're going to do a readout for your team as to where they're fitting in on all these different dimensions. Okay. Right. So, yep. hey, Joe, like here's a good example. Motorola was a client. Mm-hmm. I think they had 18 product teams across the world. This was... Mm-hmm. Uh, post so Motorola Solutions, I think they were called by then. So they had sold the mobile division to Microsoft, I think, and they were just doing all the other Motorola stuff. So this is mostly things like, you know, the, the kind of the radio stuff that um, that cops and first responders okay. drive around with, all okay. of like that, that paraphernalia. That's okay. all that stuff is Motorola. Okay, but they've got. Lots of different products and different offerings. They've got a cloud offering and blah, blah. And so they've got 18 different teams doing 18 different things in 18 different locations. Mm -hmm. And so we survey all of them. Then we came back and said, okay, so this is how each of the teams is performing against the aggregate. So we've got 2,700 responses. We can show you what that benchmarked data looks like. Mm -hmm. And we can show you where you are against that benchmark data. Mm -hmm. Then we can also say, how are you performing against the teams within your cohort? So you've got 18 teams within your organization. Your organization is unique, right? Yep. It has its own kind of space and time that it lives in. So right. what does that look like? Right. And then we would go to all of the individual leaders of those performing teams and say, mm. what is it that you need to do differently to make your team raise the bar for whatever area? So this is important because one of the things that the the um, this survey looks at is what kind of systems do you have in place? So in, in the case of design companies or product companies, very often that's like a design system. It's a okay. it's an engineering-driven idea of like keeping all the components and all the pieces of the puzzle together. Mm. But some teams, that's all they do. They are the design system team. Right. So if they perform like 98% on the design system thing, you know, that parameter, but on the other areas, they're less than great, yeah. then you might say, well, that's obvious. Yeah, that's the way you're doing what you're supposed to do. Right. So if this is the Formula One team. Hey, the guys that change the tires, they're doing right. really well on tire changing. They're doing less so on the driving. Right, right, right. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's okay because that's not what they do. Yeah. Yep. So that's what the conversation you'd have with the leaders. And we'd call this the Holy Trinity. So you have that big story of, Here's how you're doing against your industry, your geography, the companies of similar size, et cetera. Big story. Mm-hmm. Slightly smaller story. In other words, team level or group level. This is what you're doing against your cohort, your, the, the others in your organization. Here's where you can kind of lift you know, your particular performance. Yeah. And then individual leadership. What is it that the leaders can do in order to bring their teams up? So that, that holy trinity normally like a day's work once it's mm-hmm. you know all, all, all played out. Yep. But I mean, I, I cannot think of another more 
valuable set of relationship building conversations you can have because suddenly, as you said, it's not whether you're an I, J, L, I on the disc. It's, did I have the conversation? Did, did I even realize that I was doing these things and not these things? Did I even realize that these things were measurable or that right. not necessarily even measurable, but like that mattered at right. all? Right, right, right. right. That's a good point. That they, that they even matter. That that's even like to, to be, to have it illuminated to you that this stuff they're not even thinking about is the important stuff. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's very cool. Yeah. I mean, we got to continue down this thread. I think that like, obviously there's a lot um, just in the value that the DMA provided, but also like, I think that the, like there's lots that people can pull from the premise behind the DMA. Like just the, 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 the concept of something like that is valuable and applicable and can be, you know, used in different ways if you're smart about it. And I, th- I do think that there's a lot of value in, you know, getting good at that kind of methodology for a variety of reasons, whether it's business development, sales, or it's just, you know, a million different it's things. It's like talk therapy, right? Every industry should have their, their equivalent of a maturity assessment, not because maturity assessments are the be all and end all. That's right. not the point. They don't solve the problem. They're not no, an elixir. No, yeah. It's the talk therapy that goes into it. It's the fact that you had the conversation, that you yeah. surfaced the stuff yep. that really matters. Yeah. It's one thing I say in my consulting when I do biz dev consulting with people is like everybody that works with me improves and it has very little to do with me. It has to do with the fact that you hired me means you care enough about this. Like you're on the right path and like whether you get something out of me or not is great. Like maybe that happens, but generally speaking, once you care enough about biz dev that you're willing to hire a ding dong like me, that means you care enough about biz dev that you're going to get better at it. Like so, And again, similarly, Jesus Christ, just, engaging in the process, valuing it enough to spend the time to engage in the process, talk therapy, whether it's a diagnostic, whatever, like just doing it is its own reward in a lot of cases because Hard. it just, you know, it, it means you care. It means you value it. It's, 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 yeah. It's it's not, it's exactly like my buddy, Leo, who runs a gym. He, he was a exceptional engineer and was like, fuck this corporate shit. I'm going to open <laughs> up a gym. And he's an incredible guy he's he's a physicist mathematician as well he's just like a brilliant guy and he says exactly the same thing he says if somebody shows up at my gym to do the kind of work that i because it's very personalized Mm. gym if they show up for that stuff i know they're committed i know that change will happen right regardless of what i get them to do exactly right even if i gave them like something that's (laughs) non-optimal they will see massive improvements because they're here exactly to be here yeah. They could have gone to Gold's Gym yeah, 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 yeah. and, you know, fallen out through the cracks six yep. weeks later or whatever it is, yep. two weeks later. Here, they're not going to fall through the cracks. Right. And that's enough. Right. That is it. Yeah. It's just meeting them there now. Like they're, they're there. I just have to meet them there because like they've, they've taken that big ass step. hundred percent. I think that's, it's, it's hugely. And I think again, to your point, the DMA in particular, the value is it, it's one thing when you go to the gym and you go to physically improve and you don't perceive yet that like, it's actually like more about habits and outlook and healthy cognitive behavior. And then you come to realize that as you commit to like fitness or whatever, that's what the DMA is. The DMA is like, come here for the assessment, leave with this realization that it is all of this invisible human 
squishy biological stuff that actually is the stuff that matters. You may not have come for that, but you're going to leave with that. Totally. Yeah. I love that. That should be, that should be your, uh, your business card. <laughs> All right. We should wrap it up because this is Let's wrap it up. Yeah. It's a good thread and we'll continue down. I, I want to talk next time. Can, I want to continue down this path and talk a little bit more about you had, you had kind of brought this up last time. We continue down this path today. I want to talk more about, just the overall framework and process that Envision had that like people cycled through this yeah, thing. Where, you know, exactly. It's a, it's a flywheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've yeah. got to talk about it. It's amazing. Flywheel. Yep. All right, cool. All right. I'm going to stop recording now.